Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 83 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is going to be part 6 of my conversation with Bill Bupert of zerogov.com on the topic of the history of irregular warfare. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of kind of the big picture things, questions of morality, questions of narrative, questions of what lessons all of us can learn from studying irregular warfare, and even have a few listener-submitted questions to discuss towards the end. So without further ado, here we go, part six of A History of Irregular Warfare with Bill Bupert. Oh my god, he just ran in. Bill Bupert, great to have you back again on the Dangerous History Podcast. Welcome back. Well, thank you, CJ. And, and it's always an honor to be on this uh, podcast. And I think that you and I are really doing some, maybe one can say pathfinding work with, with what we're doing here because we take a, a very contrarian position to the popular notions of revolutionary warfare on the planet in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I agree. There's very few people out there who are really questioning a lot of this uh, you know, narrative about counterinsurgency and all these sorts of topics. Indeed. Okay, so where we left off last time, um, we were going to discuss the, the moral question. And so under what circumstances do you think that guerrillas, insurgents, whatever you want to call them, have the moral high ground? And under what circumstances do they not have the moral high ground? I would tease this out in, in two parts. The first part is, are they seeking to take over the entire government itself, or are they seeking to carve out a parcel of a given nation-state and declare that their own? Now, to me, that's the existential question. The tactical question is, what means do they employ to do so? And if that means employs terrorism, which, as Caleb Carr has told us, is politically motivated violence initiated against innocents and non-combatants, then I would say if they employ that tactic to either carve out a piece or to take over the government in whole, they are morally wrong. I would say that they would be morally correct if they sought to carve out a portion of a given nation state as represented on, represented on a map today and did not employ terrorism and only engaged military factions from the 
government that presently has suzerainty over them, and that they employed the entire gamut of, of things available to them, as we discussed before, such as perception, reality of grievances, the narrative framework, what they're going to do as far as promises for what they imagine or envision as the nation state or carved out piece of that nation state that they want to be different from what they're doing because they wouldn't be fighting in the first place if that weren't the case. So I think that's the way I would I would lay out the moral framework of justification. So basically it sounds like you're and you know this certainly doesn't surprise me as I think we're both on the same page as far as this goes that what what you're describing is applying the non-aggression principle in in this circumstance. Indeed. Yeah. So so if it's people who are number one, you know, really trying to avoid innocent casualties and and collateral damage as much as possible and number two they're not tr- their goal is not to force an authority on anyone else who doesn't want it but simply to remove themselves and i think from an they, authority they don't want i agree completely cj because they lose their moral authority if anything when they try to subsume an entire government apparatus within the lines of a nation state and say yay and verily we're taken over i do think that's a form of aggression I don't think that it's a Rothbardian form of aggression to carve out a little piece as long as they apply very strict edicts morally in how their rules of engagement are, are, are articulated and, and actually used within that region. So perhaps then the precision rifle in those circumstances would be a morally superior tool to, say, the car bomb? I, I agree. I agree completely. Yes, indeed. And uh, unfortunately, you and I are both, uh, I, I would say, amateur historians uh, of, of of a deep nature when it comes to the Irish Rebellion. And you find that uh, all the variations of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Irish Republican Army, both pre-World War II and, and post-World War II, employ terrorism. And, and I condemn that. Yeah. And man, it in in the case of Northern Ireland in particular – the terrorism quickly becomes such a two-way street that you know doesn't take long until the loyalists have their own terrorist groups, and it becomes so difficult to untangle um, kind of who's right and who's wrong in those circumstances because each side can point to many atrocities committed by the other side and say, look how bad they are, and and they're both correct. Now, one thing I hear a lot is different sides, different points of view on the question of modern technologies. And some people seem to think that modern technologies have made have made uh, irregular warfare and insurgency more effective, but then others seem to think that those same technologies have empowered the state so much that it makes it harder to resist the state. So what's your take on that? Do you think that modern technologies have made guerrilla warfare or insurgency or whatever you want to call it a more effective option, or have they actually empowered the state more than they've empowered potential resistors to it? I think as with that that hoary old historical question of do great events or great men form the actual cause and effect that ripples throughout history, you and I can't really answer that because I, I would suggest that it's a variant of both. And in this case, it's going to rely on the talent of the antagonist and the protagonist from a state perspective and a non-state perspective. And the reason I say that is, when, and I think we talked about this in another episode, 
the absolute flat-footed keystone cop media efforts by the West in the Middle East that don't resonate or reverberate with any of the mass base over there, despite the obvious technical and content supremacy of the West in transmission of English and some European language broadcast in, in, in mediums as, as different as computers, radio, television, those kind of things. Very flat-footed in, in the way they do that. And let me give you a domestic example in the United States. You know what Seussvalence is. Seussvalence is surveilling the surveillers. You'll note that, by the way, I think that we've, we've reached over 900 as far as Americans being killed by police in America this year alone. And I think less than 30 cops have died as a result of being engaged with perps who wanted to take their lives or, or maim them in the fashion that police do to Americans. Have you noticed that the video footage that there's tens of thousands of them on the Internet available for people to see how brutal American police tactics are, even when they don't lead to death? I would suggest to you that's a form of surveillance. As a matter of fact, the last three articles I wrote at ZeroGov.com dealt with what I think is a nation to American insurgency that is either in play as we speak or will be in play in the near future against police brutality in the United States. So if the question is, does technology help the insurgent or does it help the counterinsurgent, I think it depends on two things once again. First, how talented is the counterinsurgent in employing the whole of government policy where they're, they're not only engaging militarily, they're engaging politically, they're, en- they're engaging economically, they're engaging across all those fronts. And if they can do that effectively, I think the insurgent stands a good chance of losing. But historically, what we've seen since 1945, the insurgents tend to have the upper hand. And unfortunately, the insurgents who practice terrorism and the insurgents who practice self-immolation like homicide bombing and suicide bombing in the Middle East and in Sri Lanka, you discover that that kind of uh, behavior does work well for insurgents in advancing their tactical military victories, but not necessarily their operational and strategic military victories. What about, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this objection before, people saying that you know, guerrilla warfare is, is not a viable option simply because of weapons technologies on, on the part of the state. People who say, well, the state's got stealth bombers and uh, <laughs> drones and they've got this and they've got that and they've got, you know, and basically making the firepower argument. I don't know about you, but I've heard that a lot. Oh, I hear and that pe- a lot. And my yeah, answer yeah, and pe- is very pe- simple. Exhibit A, Afghanistan. Exhibit B, Iraq. Exhibit C, Libya. Exhibit right. D, Syria. And I could go on and on and on where you have quite literally rifle cultures, rifleman cultures that, that have held these very formidable military powers at bay, whether it's the French, whether it's the British, or recently the United States, I think it's a, I think it's a, a fatuous argument. I don't think it ha- holds any water. Yeah, I've often heard it in regards to the American Revolution, you know, when, when you point out the, the positive sides and the potential, at least, of, of that conflict, and then people will say, yeah, but you could, you could never have something like that be successful today, because back then, you know, they were all using using muskets, and then today you'd be facing drones and blah, 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 and yeah. And that, that's exa- the answer I give is basically the same as you just gave, which is, well, <laughs> then if that's the case, then how come you've got so many situations in, in recent years where, where individuals armed with uh, antique weapons half the time, 
and uh, you know, with with no more logistics than like a bottle of water and a pair of sandals. Indeed, and and they have the home team advantage. They know their turf intimately, and you and I have discussed over the series that a running motif is terrain is critically important to to success and defeat when it comes to the conduct of an insurgency. Sure, and they could even read that. Uh, Rand Corporation study that I've linked to once or twice already yeah, in this series. Yeah. And even the Rand Corporation says that simply cracking down and trying to defeat an insurgency with just brute force and firepower is counterproductive. And the, and the Rand Corporation is a, is a government supremacist organ. They are a think tank that is built with a, with a solid steel confirmation bias that the conduct of coin by the U.S. and the West overseas is a good thing. It's all about hard power, soft power, and all of these things. And it, it has a running assumption that the conduct and the interference and the meddlesome nature of American and Western foreign policy is, at its core, goodness. Yeah, so I, I think we're definitely in agreement on that, that if insurgency is so so non-effective, then why the hell does it keep triumphing everywhere? It, um, absolutely. You know, what? what's interesting about all of this is that when we look at insurgency from a, from a tactical perspective, what we're seeing is people are saying, either violently or nonviolently, depending on, on, on what toolbox they use or the entirety of the toolbox that they use, they're simply saying, we wish to opt out of the system and assume our own destiny. We wish to captain our own fate. We wish to make it so that we're going to carve out a piece of the planet that belongs to us and us alone. Now, does that mean that once they've carved out that piece of the planet, that it's the yellow brick road? And everybody's wearing ruby slippers and everybody gets everything that they want and everyone's – it, it certainly does not. It doesn't mean that. But I would suggest that, for instance, with the United States, instead of 50 states, if there are 50,000 states and there was this marketplace of a polity, sort of a panarchical perspective, that it puts the brakes on tyranny because once tyrants start building walls to keep people in because they're not allowing them to opt out, what that means is that their neighbors have won to a certain extent. At, at both an existential and a local level. And in essence, the brakes are put on the tyranny because they discover – let me give you a, a brief example. I think the state of Maryland several years ago put a surtax on millionaires and they thought, well, we'll increase the budget with this revenue yeah. stream. Well, it turns out that the next year – and some of your audience could probably stipulate this by looking on the internet – their revenue fell by half because the the rich folks who they had targeted had simply either changed their – their their state you know to another one or or hid their money in some fashion but all you're do, all you're doing is taking perverse incentives like that and you make people become ingenious at hiding their stuff and good for them by the way yeah it reminds me of and, and you've probably come across some of these arguments before uh that there have been several economic historians and i can't think of their names right now who have written studies of kind of late medieval early modern europe and they've said one of the big reasons for the so-called European miracle where you know Europe went from not being at the forefront in the world in terms of wealth and technology and innovation to, to becoming the, the leader in, in the world in those fields was that Europe in the late medieval, early modern period was so fragmented and so you know broken up into so many small and medium-sized states and city-states and little tiny republics and whatever that it, it, it incentivized governments, not that they always – heated these incentives, but at least it did create incentives for the governments at that time to behave in a less predatory fashion 
towards their most productive citizens because if they suddenly start confiscating people's property or jacking taxes up through the roof, people would just vote with their feet and in some cases literally just a few miles away there's another principality and that guy would be happy to welcome you and welcome all your all your capital and everything um because you know it strengthens uh you know his polity and you know cj i've got to admit a confirmation bias in this when i look at history uh, i don't look at the dark ages as the dark ages i i look at the dark ages as a time that describes precisely what you just said where you have these small fragmented semi-independent or independent polities that do put the brakes on the big states because the big states can't keep their most productive citizens who they're trying to rob and rape because those citizens simply emigrate and go elsewhere. And and when you look at the and, – and I guess this is something a scholar could take up if they wanted to write a PhD thesis is when Rome fell in the 6th century and all of a sudden – well, it, it actually bifurcated itself into the, the east and the west. That thousand-year period before the re- – the uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period was that actually a dark age? I mean, a, and and it's described by all of us who attended government schools as a time when, because there weren't these huge tyrannical, vast government mechanisms with kings and queens in in sway over these large swaths of helots, things were dark. Things were awful. Well, things weren't. I mean, it 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 wasn't as bad as they make it out to be. When I look at it historically. And, and I'm just a, a casual student of, of that era. I find that I would have paid less taxes than I pay in America today as a serf. Yeah, I, I think the way I would describe it is there was – and it can be verified by archaeology – there was uh, a decline in a lot of measures of standard of living and prosperity in the West when the Western Roman Empire fell apart, largely due to the disruption of trade networks – and so, in other words, you had one of the positive things done by the Roman Empire was the the infrastructure and the reduction of trade barriers inside the empire. And there was a period of time where, because people had become um, – there was a lot of specialization economically by, by region during the Roman Empire – and so there was a lot of short-term pain when it collapsed and there was no longer dependable uh, long-distance trade capability because you had certain regions that had become super specialized in maybe just a few commodities or a few crops or whatever. Yeah. And they were, they were not prepared for having to be locally self-sufficient. And so um, I would say that there was, there was short and even medium-term uh, material you know, loss – terms of a lot of people's standard of living, but that, that, that those very conditions then set the stage for uh, eventually Europe taking the lead in the world because you had an extended period of not having a, a centralized you know, state. Once, once trade networks started to be reestablished and that sort of thing, um, it started to make a comeback. But that, that's what I see anyway as a potential in the United States is look at how much of our current standard of living is based on things like long distance trucking and regional specialization well, and if if something happened like you know those those transportation networks broke down or uh, oil wasn't available to run all those trucks it might be good in the long term but but there would be a lot of people suffering in the short term i i agree completely with what you just said and and we, you and I had a conversation earlier where the American Historical Association and the Association of American Historians would object mightily 
to the analysis that you just spent two minutes brilliantly describing because that's not their confirmation bias and that's not what they can say in a classroom because what you say in modern American government and I would say Western classrooms is is the majority voice speaks to the bigger the state, the better the welfare of the people and then they go on and on from this flawed premise. And I think that premise is entirely flawed because for a very simple reason, and I know we're getting a bit off topic here, but I think it's germane to this entire subject, innovation comes from individual minds. Mobs and groups don't have minds. Minds are individual, volitional, moral agents that create all the stuff that we're surrounded by, whether physical or ethereal. NASA's brilliance doesn't exist. They do have brilliant scientists, engineers, things like that, who have have the misfortune of working for NASA. NASA, like the British, achieves all of its victories in spite of its best efforts. And I think that one can say that is probably the way governments behave through the ages, but because of their ability to hit, to steal, to violate the Ten Commandments, and to use brute force, and to initiate violence, and to threaten violence, and that kind of thing, that's what holds their fabric together, because that's what they're built on. And I may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it bears mentioning again, the beauty of capitalism, call that, 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 that framework whatever you wish. I know it's, some people call it markets. I, I, I like to call it capitalism because everybody understands that, is that CJ's never met Bill. You and I both wear firearms, holstered firearms, of course. But in a hypothetical situation, you and I meet on a riverbank to talk about a trade transfer or a future cooperative effort as two capitalist combines we're wearing weapons. Holy crap, maybe we even bring bodyguards to protect us from the government. And uh, we're complete strangers. We meet. We discuss the details. We come to a decision on that we're going to take on, on what the framework of our contract looks like. We shake hands. We leave. No firearms have been unholstered. No threats have been made. And you and I will both profit from that. That entire scenario I just painted is an alien concept to both American historians and government supremacists. Yeah, and notice what the key ingredient is in that uh, transaction is everything's voluntary. Indeed. Yes. If if you know if we're not both happy with the terms of whatever exchange is happening, the exchange doesn't happen, and that's it. You know, nobody gets to force anybody to do anything they don't want to do. Isn't that interesting? That true freedom is measured by your ability to opt out of whatever you don't want to do, yeah, which you can't do in a state. Point. Which no, speaks no. to insurgency in a big way, because what insurgency is saying is, you know, we've tried all measures of peaceful interaction to sue for our rights to be left alone which is really what it comes down to for the most part, although you will have communist, socialist, government supremacists add, you know, whatever you want in front of ist. That means you're going to do what we want, whether you like it or not. You certainly have those out there, but there are some extraordinary circumstances like in Zomia that Scott has written about in Southeast Asia and some Indonesian uh, resistance organizations that didn't even have a political framework in place when they rebelled in the first place because they said, We'll figure that out afterwards. We need to sue for our freedom now, and we've exhausted all peaceful means. So unfortunately, we have to resort to a means where we that where a military component is taken on, among other things, because the you know insurgency takes place planet wide and throughout history on a number of different fronts, and the military tends to be the junior partner component in everything that's done, as we've discussed with narrative, legitimacy, grievances, 
the use of black markets, the use of gray markets. You know, if it weren't for black markets and gray markets, the Soviet Union could not have lasted for the time that it did. It provided a lubricity for, for a sclerotic and arthritic system that couldn't provision crap because it was centrally planned. It went against the Hayekian principle and, and the Misian principle that you simply don't have enough information to plan for everybody and, and to make these assumptions that you can provision everybody's needs and wants absent price signals. It's impossible. The pretense of knowledge. Yes, yes. What, what Hayek called the fatal conceit of intellectuals. Mm-hmm. You've already brought this up a, a, f- a few times throughout this series, but I wanted to bring it up one more time just to see if there was anything else you had left uh, to, to share on it or anything to sort of tie it up. And that is the question of modern communications and media technologies and the importance of narrative and, and the degree to which narrative is really the centerpiece of insurgency and, and is actually more important than what physically happens on the, ba- on the battlefield. Um, any other, other thoughts aside from what you've already, already said on this topic that you'd like to throw in? Maybe I've said this in another podcast, but it, but it does bear repeating. April 19th, 1775, as a result of what happened at, at Lexington Green, one thing that you, – and you've discussed uh, Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, and a number of others being members of two dozen different committees. That, and they were standing committees. They were neighborhood watch committees. Uh, all these different variants of men who would get together and say, how are we going to throw this, this terrible – United Kingdom thugocracy uh, away from us. You know how how are we going to get out from under this? After Lexington Green, and I can't remember who it was, and again, your audience can discover this on, on the internet or on books. Somebody said we need to get the fastest packet ship going to London. We need to have affidavits, witness statements, all of this stuff. We're going to put together a, a media package. I'll bet they didn't call it that then. A media package of what happened from our perspective as colonials. And we're going to get it to our contacts in the London newspapers. They beat the London government to the punch. They established the narrative. They shaped the conditions. They're the ones who said this is exactly what happened. And they didn't give a chance for the, for the London government to create that narrative framework out of whole cloth. And then they'd be responding to it. I'll get, and let's fast forward 200, 250 years. We discovered today that there was that cop in South Carolina, who gunned down a man in cold blood because he stopped him for a failed taillight or something in his Mercedes. The video footage clearly shows cold-blooded murder. That cop wasn't aware that somebody had video recorded him. He submitted a report that showed that he tried to take my taser. He tried to assault me. I was in fear for my life. He sees the narrative, or thought he sees the narrative. But in the absence of his knowledge of not knowing he had been video recorded, he thought, I can get away with whatever lies and fabrications I create. It turns out that isn't the case. So those two events, April 19, 1775, current events we're seeing with police brutality, for instance, and everything in between bookends an entire history that we can examine. And we can go back to, to the Roman and Greco area, era, and you discover that rhetoricians and orators – would set the conditions and, and, and set the stage for such powerful narrative frameworks because they initiated those narrative frameworks. And that's why I think narrative frameworks are, are incredibly they're, – they're complex, but they're so important as a component of successful insurgency. 
Yeah, and and I just want to amplify that. Think of the the advantage that the American insurgents had simply from getting their version of April 19, 1775 into the fastest ship so it got to to London before yeah. the government's version. And then th- think about today how much even more of an advantage that virtually everybody is carrying in their pocket a device that can record audio and video and upload it to the world instantly. Indeed. And all the different things we have, all the different social media and all these different apps now where, you know, something can be uploaded, a video can be uploaded permanently to a safe place. So even if they confiscate your phone, it's already been, you know, it's already done. And put all these things together, even things like podcasts, blogs, YouTube, all these other technologies. And yeah, does the state have an ability to meddle in that and to shut things down? Certainly, but then... The market, the the free side of things, is always finding ways around that. Always finding um, new technologies, whether it's torrents and you know bit torrents and all that stuff, um, all these other technologies that decentralize things even further and make a lot of the state's counterattacks really ineffective, or at least a lot less effective than they would be. You know, nobody reads newspapers anymore, for the most part. I no. think I think it's a dying industry. I think the internet has has superseded that, and the government can shut down the internet and the government does hire agents of the state as we see documented on the internet itself who play provocateur we've discovered for instance that i think it's nearly 85 percent of all alleged domestic terrorism incidents have had the fbi involved from the ground up in provocation encouragement and entrapment of of the persons involved in these incidents on U.S. soil. And this is the reported stuff. You know, who knows how much is out there that that hasn't been reported yet that the government was so embarrassed at their slipshod and incompetent handling of it, they, they were able to use classification as a means to hide their keystone cop behavior. And I think that's what classification does for the most part in the DOD and the government sector at the federal level is that it, it, it hides malevolence and it hides incompetence. You know, I'm often asked, by conspiracy theorists, and, and I, I don't even take um, lap swims in conspiratorial fever swamps. Well, what's the answer? Does the government behave the way it does because it's doing something because the Illuminati, the Illuminati or the reptiloids told them to do it, or they do it out of sheer incompetence? And if, if I'm given the choice, CJ, of incompetence or conspiracy to explain government volition and behavior, I always, I always default to incompetence. Yeah, it's it's definitely Occam's razor in a lot of Indeed. situations. Yes, yeah. Occam's Although razor, I do think- of course, m- means for those in the audience who aren't aware, the simplest explanation tends to be the best explanation. Yeah, although there are certain instances where I do think that there is active, conscious malevolence going on. I, I, you know what? I maybe we can tease this out, and I do think that this is relevant to the insurgency discussion, especially when we look at. The British case, for instance, in Malaya, because the British case in Malaya, as we've discussed in other portions of the podcast series, has always been hailed as the way proper insurgency, counterinsurgency is done. And that the British wrote the book after World War II on the way proper counterinsurgency is done. I'm here to tell you that's, that's a false narrative, that, that it's, it's patently wrong. What General Templar did, and I respect him as a military man in certain respects, what he did in Malaya was was malevolence. I mean, when you institute concentration camps, when you have assassination policies against the leaders of organizations that are contra 
the policy of the United Kingdom. We saw the same thing happen with the Mau Mau in Kenya. We've seen the same thing happen again and again with the British behavior when it comes to counterinsurgency. We see it with French behavior. We see it with U.S. behavior. It's all built on, on brute force tactics that institutionalize torture for the most part when it comes to the West, which is really unfortunate. And I think that's, a, that's an as yet unheralded and unexamined story in how deep torture has been a part and parcel of the whole counterinsurgency narrative both pre- and post-World War II. What would you describe as, at least according to its proponents, the quote-unquote best practices for a coin campaign? You know, if you were to look at, I don't know, the RAND uh, sure. Corporation study or or any of the, the sort of neoconish people and, and yeah. groups that have put this stuff together, uh, according to them, what's what are the best practices for successful counterinsurgency and what's your take on, on that? You know, the sense I get from having saturated myself – with a lot of that, is that it's sort of a wink and a nod, CJ. I, I get the impression that they'll say, well, you need to use whole of government perspective. And I put dash between whole and of and government because that's the way they do it. You need to have a more holistic and long-term approach. You need to have strategic and grand strategic frameworks. You need to make the military the, the, the junior partner in all of these efforts. Does any of that, any of that lip service occur on the ground? To my observation, no, I have not seen it. And, and I I would urge your audience that if, if they want to take me on and say, hey, Bill, you're wrong because in the following counterinsurgency, the military was the junior partner and everything that did occur was humane and directed towards creating a, a nation state that would be neutral or beneficial to the national security interests of the state or states that started the counterinsurgency campaign in the first place. And, and they'll go on and on in the RAND study. But remember, the RAND study has a confirmation bias as a government supremacist apologist organization. That's what they're designed to do. That's why they get so much government funding because they're going to come out with the flawed premises and the preconceived conclusions to flawed premises that justify the money laundering operation that is a military industrial complex nationwide. Now, mind you, I'm, I'm a Smedley Butler acolyte. And I don't think that there's a big conspiracy where all of a sudden the military-industrial complex says, yeah, let's, let's get involved in another war. I think it's a symbiotic relationship. Politicians love war because war expands the state. Big business loves big government because that expands their bottom line. It also allows them to assume monopoly powers because the government erects legal barriers to competition, which you find in a lot of the military-industrial complex with the big players. You look at weapons programs in America and, and, and I would say throughout the West because if you look at the weapons programs of the UK, it's, it's, it's incredibly shabby and, and ill-advised and ill-informed in everything they do. Just look at the naval disasters of the Royal Navy in the last 40 years as far as the conduct of how their ships fare when they use them in, in normal times and construction efforts of said ships. Same thing with the United States where you look at various very expensive weapon systems that the United States adopts, whether it's the F-22 or the F-35 or some of the more abortive big projects that they've assumed in the past. Absolute unmitigated disasters for everyone except the government and the corporations that were building them. Yeah, and then there's the whole bankster angle, the whole Wall Street angle. When you look at, in, in modern wars, how much of these operations the state finances on credit, basically. Absolutely. 
which yeah. which basically enriches Wall Street and enslaves all of us as as taxpayers and average citizens, enslaves us further to the banksters, even if we've never personally as individuals signed up for any loan. As Lysander Spooner would say, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't sign shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And certainly my children and grandchildren who already have a few hundred thousand dollars a piece on their head. Um, and, you know, I have children, but my grandchildren don't even exist yet. But the immorality I, of that, the immorality yeah, of the premise. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It just astounds me. But look at the hubris of doing that. I mean, it, it, it's what drove me philosophically to be an abolitionist is the absolutely – and you've mentioned this before, CJ – the absolutely predatory nature of the state against even – the recipients of state largesse who think the state is doing things for their benefit. Yeah, it seems to me like the root of all of that is basically just accepting the collectivist paradigm. Yes. That once once you accept that premise of collectivism, well, then everything is justified. Then, yeah, enslaving unborn people with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt without anything even resembling their consent is perfectly acceptable because we are one nation, indivisible, and all that nonsense. And it, and it speaks to the larger sense of the whole series you've been kind enough to invite me to participate in with you, which is that insurgency, if conducted in a moral fashion, fashion which we covered at the, at the uh, beginning of this podcast, if conducted in a moral fashion, is nothing more than the purest exploitation of what every human being wants, which is self-ownership, which is the ability to guide their own destiny, which is the ability to pass on to their progeny, whether children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, a greater freedom than they experience themselves. None of us have that ability right now because every road leads to Big Brother. So if the government asks itself, why are there so many insurgencies planet-wide? The simple question is people want to seek their own destinies. Now, and I mentioned this before, CJ, it doesn't mean that just because an insurgent seeks this divorce from the greater state that they have the best of intentions for their population – We've seen, for instance, what happened with the USSR between 1917 and 1922. We see what happened with China after World War II. We see what happened with all of these communist slave states where insurgency was the embryonic fashion in which the orchid hothouse growth of collectivism took root and, and absorbed these countries in whole or, or even entire regions. So I'm not here as, 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 a, um, as, as a guy participating in these questions saying – yeah, all insurgency is right. I'm not saying that. But if that insurgency meets those moral standards that you and I discussed earlier, and if that insurgency leads to the actual carving out of a freer state, like the first seven years of the United – let's see, the first eight years of the United States until the Constitution enslaved the, the entire country, then I think that's a good thing. Uh, digging more into this notion of kind of the – the links between irregular warfare and the state itself. Do you think that guerrilla warfare, insurgency, fourth generation warfare, all these phenomena, do you think they're an inevitable side effect of the rise of the modern centralized state? In other words, are these sorts of conflicts and these sorts of resistance movements sort of like a Newtonian reaction to the actions of the rise of the state and its attempt to just dominate human life in every aspect. I subscribe to Martin Van Creveld's notion that the rise of the nation-state occurred between the 13th and the 17th century, as we see it today. Even though I think the Roman Empire gave a real good run for its money as far as 
its, its bureaucratic breadth and control that it practiced. But I do think that Newton's third law, action and reaction, is a vital part of this because historically we've seen, even absent the modern nation state, you and I have drank rather deeply from the historical well in Greco-Roman times and, and, and other areas around the planet. Insurgency, guerrilla warfare, counter, counterinsurgency, all of that thing was alive and well even before the rise of the modern nation state. Let's posit that it's the 15th century. We can differ on which century it actually started. I would say it's a universal phenomenon that's probably been around since Cro-Magnon Man. Should we expect it to become more more frequent the more that states just dominate not only geographically all the spaces on the globe but um, sort of vertically all the aspects of human life? I mean, should should we expect that to create more instances of resistance? Or do you think that people will be successfully kind of like in some of the darker dystopian novels, will will people become successfully domesticated and cowed and battered into submission by a combination of uh, Velvet Glove and Iron Fist, you know, a combination of Soma and the Thought Police, as it were? You know, my, my response is going to be disappointed to the audience because I'm going to say it's all of the above. You know, for, from my perspective, what I see is that the more the state presses people on their individuality and the more – they are tied to clan, blood, and familial origins and frameworks that are stronger than the government, then that's when you will see more resistance. Let me give an illustration of this. During World War I, another you know, really ill-fated and silly enterprise by the government to ensnare the United States into world affairs and make the government bigger, of course, as Harry Elmer Barnes taught us and, and Randolph Bourne, but what you saw in World War I was you saw American-flagged battalions or regiments going into battle under state flags. This happened in the Spanish-American War and such. You'll notice that we fast-forward to World War II, and you find that there is no Montana Division. There is no Washington State Division. All of them have been Americanized and consolidated under American flag frameworks so that they can start to dissolve and weaken any regional, state, county, or local affiliations of people and meld these fighting organizations into singular organizations under centrally planned organisms like the United States. That's why you see the 82nd Airborne Division, which is the old Americans. You see the 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. They're not the Screaming Montana Eagles. They're not the Screaming Wisconsin Eagles. They're the Screaming Eagles. One of the reasons they're doing that is because the more effective a state is at establishing the state as family instead of your family as family, the more they will be able to control you in a fashion throughout your life from A to Z. There's a very interesting book I read a long time ago, I think when I was in graduate school. It, I cannot remember the author's name for the life of me, but I remember the title. It was Peasants into Frenchmen. Have, oh, have you ever uh, I have read not. this book? I have not, but okay. I, I did read a book. I think it was called The Discovery of France, where France did not become what it is today until the 19th century. And then, of course, you have Germany, which was a number of uh, principates and, and local organizations and, and polities until 1870 under Bismarck. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a, a very similar um, sort of a book, very yeah. similar yeah. sort of a thesis. Um, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll throw it in the show notes in case anyone's interested. But it was a great case study of how 
you create this homogenized sort of a polity, you know, this homogenized population. Yep. And the argument that he was making was it was really under I forget it wouldn't have been the third the third republic that came in uh, in 1871 after the overthrow of, of Napoleon III and um, was in place basically until France was conquered by Germany yep. in 1940, yep. the Third Republic, that that was really when the project of creating a homogenized France that people actually like self-identified with wasn't really done until that time period, roughly, you know, 1870 through the aftermath of World War One. And again, the title of the book was Peasants into Frenchmen. And he, and he goes through all these different logistical methods by which the French state under the Third Republic did this. And he says, as late as, I think, 1870, the majority of the people living in the country known as France did not actually speak the official French language as their first language. And I'm familiar with that because of that book that I read. I think that was called The Discovery of France. But uh, I'll, I'll, send yeah. you the, uh, I'll send it to you for the show notes. Okay, yeah, it sounds yeah. sounds like it's very much in the it same does. in the same sort of vein yeah. as peasants into Frenchmen, and the some of the things he identified as the key methods by which the state created France, you know, as a, as a unified blob, um, were of, you know things that would not surprise us, right? Uh, centralized, centrally controlled government schooling. He also pointed out government infrastructure that by connecting some of the more you know, remote and sometimes mountainous regions of France, which had been very locally independent for centuries, by connecting them with good roads and high-speed rail to Paris, it was a very effective means of cultural imperialism, of making people living out in the in the fringes in the provinces become more culturally homogenized to the culture of of Paris. And, of course, another thing that um, was key in bringing about this was exactly what you were saying a few minutes ago about having a national army that was conscripted in which the units were not, you know, only from one province right. or one department yeah. where, you know, it was people from all over France being pushed together under under the command of a guy who only spoke the official French language, so you better learn it. And, and it makes me think of all the World War II movies in America where – Every World War II movie, the company's got one guy from Brooklyn, yep. one, one farm boy from the Midwest, yep. one southern guy from Alabama, uh -huh. right? one guy with a suntan from California, <laughs> um, and then they, they, they go through you know, D-Day together or whatever it is, and then by the end, by, by God, they're all part of the same team. They're right? all bonded. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Band I, of brothers. I, I think there's even a, uh, there's a rather draconian French language organization in Paris, that's a government organization, that polices the language. You know, and, and actually enforces what it's going to be, and what a powerful way for it to use that in concert with education, where you monopolize the language, you monopolize the education system, to drive that wedge between family loyalty and loyalty to the government. I mean, it's a it's a vital component of state supremacy to do that kind of thing. Yeah, and looking at America today, I, I see a lot of the same sorts of cultural imperialism going on. Um, homogenizing the country and its population. And I have no idea how much of it is deliberate, how much of it's calculated versus how much of it is just sort of a, a side effect of other things that they're trying to achieve. But I mean, I look at things like television and things like the interstate highway system, just to throw out two examples. And whether they're intended to or not, it looks like those things, one of the effects they've had has been to homogenize the people in the United States more, where 
regional dialects and accents are fading out where um you know every town has the same chain stores in it as the next town there's there's no longer like a a uniqueness to each town um th- there's just this sort of homogenization and leveling out of people and that seems like a very effective tool to make people less prone to things like rebellion and resistance i i agree with you i think that and and i think a large part of that may not be by design, but by happenstance. For instance, with the American education system, it's been brilliant that they've been able to homogenize the government supremacist notions of, well, of course the government provisions education. How how would anybody learn without it? I, sure. I, I don't necessarily think that's – Gatto would tell us that's by strict design and that there's people in back rooms, smoky back rooms who have designed the system because – I got to tell you the honest truth, and this is going to insult some people in your audience. Teachers, K through 12, and even in undergraduate institutions for the most part, have left me underwhelmed as far as their critical thinking capabilities. The centralization, uh, uh, increasing centralization of the state and increasing encroachment of it into more aspects of life all the time, do you think it's possible that what's happening there is almost sort of like two contradictory things at once where – it's bifurcating the population. And what I mean by that is there are certain numbers of people who under those circumstances will become more domesticated, more compliant, and so on. And then there are different groups of people who it'll have the opposite effect, who the increasing encroachment of the state into everything actually will make them less compliant, make them more problematic I, from the state's point of view. I get in trouble for this, but I've got to posit it nonetheless. I think there's an anti-authoritarian gene, CJ. I, I do think that there are certain people who are predisposed genetically to be anti-authoritarian. Take the Celts, for instance. Take um, some other regions in Rome and Greece who just resisted to the last man practically any kind of suzerainty of the state over what they did. We see it in Southeast Asia, I think, to a certain extent. I I, I, of course, there's going to be this this multiplicity of different human reactions to authority, and what I've written on in, in the past is that this resistance to authority only happens when the obedience stops, and it doesn't mean that violence has to be employed. When we look at Gandhi's Satyagraha campaigns, when we look at Hamas and Hezbollah creating these actual shadow governments that soon subsume the government authority that they're fighting and become the government authority in and of themselves. There's a whole gamut of reactions to larger state authority that allows people to choose from a menu how they're going to resist and ultimately how they're going to disobey. Because if disobedience doesn't occur, if one one says questioning authority is what I'm going to do, that's all well and good. But once you harness your question of authority to your withdrawal of your obedience – that's where the rubber hits the road, and I would suggest that that's where insurgency becomes real. Are there lessons that we can learn from guerrilla warriors and insurgents, even if we as individuals never actually literally fight against the state in a physical or violent sort of a sense? I mean, are, are there lessons that just sort of apply to zones of life, even outside of, of physical conflict? that we can glean from studying some of the, uh, some of the great you know, guerrilla fighters of history? There, there's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. And I have to hearken back to what, what really animates me as an individual, which is my capital S stoicism. 
And, and if anybody's interested, I did a five-part series with uh, Brett Veneau at School Sucks Project on that if they want to explore that. And there's legions of books out there on Stoicism. Stoicism is built around several tenets. One of the tenets that is germane to our conversation today is that we control ourselves. And there's an apocryphal story of a Stoic philosopher being called before a Roman emperor to his court to which he refuses to consent. The Roman emperor then says, and I'm paraphrasing here, well, I can have you bodily brought before me or even killed, to which he responds, and I paraphrase again, you may kill me, you may maim me, you may do whatever you wish, but my body will be in your court, but it will be without my consent. So from that, the existential lesson we draw from insurgency, resistance, and rebellion, and all of these kind of things is that ultimately our decision to, to take our lives into account as individuals or groups of individuals who consent to go in league with us is built on our ability to live our own lives even at the expense of those lives and to say that obedience isn't simply a catchword but something we're going to adopt as a lifestyle choice and that's what will ultimately destroy the state in total over time in the future. You know, it's very interesting, that story there there is somewhere in in one of the the great books of Taoism. It might be the Way of Chuang Tzu. I can't remember which, but there is a story in in one of the ancient books of Taoism that is extremely similar. I mean, almost the same situation where an emperor is summoning some Taoist sage to his court, and the sage says something equivalent to to the story you just told from Stoicism. So very interesting how, how two philosophies, which, which certainly are not you know, identical, but have a lot, of, a lot of parallel elements that are geographically so separated that obviously they couldn't have been, at the time anyway, directly you know, influencing I, each other. I agree. Still come, to the same, yeah. still come to the same conclusions and have similar stories. I, because I see the same parallel development between the Bushido in Japan and Stoicism. I, I don't think there was a lot of communication between those philosophical schools of thought. And there were some radical departures from what one would characterize as Greco-Roman Stoicism and the Samurai Code. But nonetheless, you see a whole lot of similarities as far as being free moral agents, self-volition, self-ownership, and the ability to take the decision that no matter the expense, I will stick by my principle, even if it costs me my life. And another thing that pops into my head as I think about these parallels is Stoicism. I know it didn't begin during the Western Roman Empire, but one of its sort of heydays, if you will, was, I believe, during the latter part of the Western Roman Empire. Is yes, that correct? it was. So when the, when the Roman state was becoming kind of as incompetent and predatory as it ever was <laughs> – and what's interesting is then you look at when when Taoism or Zen Buddhism have flourished in the East, and it's often when analogous situations are occurring in the other great empire of the ancient world that was close to being a modern state, the Chinese Empire. Well, you know what I suspect here is that a large part of genius is the is making combinations of inter- interdisciplinary inquiries and finding new ways to look at the world. And that's something that's happening here. And I'm not saying that you and I are geniuses, CJ. I'm saying that when one looks at insurgency and then you link it up to Stoicism or Taoism or even Bushido, and you link it up to 
Rothbardian notions of non-aggression and you link it up to all these different things, all of a sudden you're coming up with new liberty DNA combinations that, that you and I haven't invented but we've simply discovered. And I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, we've we've discovered or, or rediscovered or perhaps made connections between things that may not at first glance seem related but on closer inspection are. And and that's part of complexity theory. That's part of chaos theory. That's part of and, – and, and I would say that all the notions and, – and of course, complexity theory and chaos theory, for those in the audience who are unfamiliar with it, you've all been exposed to it when you watched Jurassic Park for the first time. And there's mm-hmm. the black-clad scientist played by Jeff Goldblum who is very skeptical of this notion that we can create – and this is a fictional account – we can create these dinosaurs from the amber – and completely control what's going to happen. And he says that nature will find a way. And I think in, in, in that, that one sentence there, what he's saying is that be severely skeptical of how you've measured unintended consequences because you have no idea what you're doing. And I think for the most part, when I look at the history of government counterinsurgency, I see a lot of that kind of keystone cop, almost ambivalence or maybe cognitive hostility to entertaining anything going wrong with the best laid plans. It really comes back to the arrogance of the state in a lot of ways. The Hayekian fatal conceit, I I agree. Yeah, yeah, the same people that think, oh yeah, yeah, from, you know, a handful of people in a room in D.C., of course they can successfully plan (laughs) the economy for 300 million people. Of course they can, right? Um, are, are, Are also the same people who say, of course you can invade Iraq and Afghanistan and completely remake their country in a couple of years without that much cost to you. Of course we can do that. <laughs> in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya, and, and everything, everything is spinning out of control. Syria is spinning out of control. You know, IS, ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call it, that is a Western creation that was designed to topple the Assad regime. Well, it's, it's completely uh, dissolved – any controls that the West had imposed upon it, much like Al-Qaeda, which was an embryonic brainchild of UBL when he was actually working as a contractor for the federal government during the 1980s, fighting the Russians in Afghanistan. So, you know, if, if I see anything as a lesson in all of this, it's that government is an engine for perverse incentives and unintended consequences in everything that it does. What do you think about lessons we can learn from from the history of irregular warfare that are perhaps not not as philosophical or or in the moral realm but are more in the realm of of simply tactics and and again I'm thinking of things that are not directly related to to physical fighting in any way yeah. but you know I've been inspired personally by a lot of this stuff going going way back just to use one example, starting this podcast, you know, I, I started this podcast with like almost nothing in the way of of uh, capital. I mean, my my equipment when I began was terrible. Um, I barely knew what the hell I was doing. I'm not the most tech savvy guy. So, but then we went was, to Michael Dean's Creamy Audio, yes. uh, broadcasting school. Yeah, that that certainly was a big help right there. And then, of course. Uh, support from listeners has allowed me to to upgrade the hardware side of things, which helps. But you know, a lot of people in the so-called new media, whether whether it's people with blogs like yourself, people with podcasts like me, or anyone, even a lot of uh, YouTubers who are putting out you know serious, thoughtful content, 
that a lot of the new media, as it's called, is really guerrilla warfare or asymmetric warfare applied to the realm of of media, where it's it's David versus Goliath, basically, right? It's it's people who at first look like they have nothing but disadvantages, but are able to oftentimes beat, quote unquote, in the realm of ideas, the giant media dinosaurs, the newspaper and television companies and all this sort of thing. So I'd, um, I'd like to offer two observations. The first is is Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors, like Dan Carlin. Even though I don't agree with his answers most of the time, I love the questions that he poses. And he did – and what we'll do is we'll put this in the show notes if you don't mind, CJ. He did two brilliant talks and I think there are talks, one in which he discussed the Norden bombsite and its development and its absolute uselessness during the war to save Joseph Stalin in the end as far as efficacy and effectiveness of, of uh, carpet bombing and, and strategic bombing was concerned. And then he also did this really interesting analysis of David versus Goliath on why this apparently weaker foe was able to best a physically superior foe. And, and we'll get together and, and put those in the show notes, but it's terrific. And then I have to offer you what you, you may think is from the theater or the University of the Intuitively Obvious as an answer to your question of how one who is liberty-minded can look at insurgency and discover ways to improve their everyday life. And what I offer is this. Not only should you master your critical thinking skills, which takes a lifetime to truly master and, 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 uh, and achieve the kind of critical thinking mastery of a Mortimer Adler or a Christopher Hitchens, but question all premises brought before you. In logic, we have premises that is either one premise or multiple premises that lead to a conclusion. Reverse engineer, reverse plan, those premises from the conclusion you're presented with by either yourself or anybody you interact with or the government and start interrogating it and saying, does that premise hold forth? Does that, does that make sense? For instance, if we hearken back to 2001, 2003, we're told that there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There were 21 causes belli that the Bushevik's came up with as a reason to go to war, many of which had to do with this WMD chimera. Well, it turns out to be a chemo. It turns out to be wrong. But so many people, even in the intelligence community, said, oh, no, no, no. We've got all the information. We've got all the answers. It's done. If people had simply questioned the premises, if, if they had simply said, well, how does this logically make sense? They would have discovered that it was all a sham. So I, I hope you don't think that's lame, CJ. But that's, that would be my answer of what can you learn from guerrilla warfare and irregular warfare? Always question the primary and secondary premises that lead to the conclusions of why you're thinking the way you do as long as you know what your confirmation bias is. And I would just urge anyone listening to really always question what true strength is and what true power is and and whether or not weakness is always what you think it is. And that David and Goliath's story and, and Malcolm Gladwell's take on it is a wonderful example of strength, apparent strength, being in fact great weakness and vulnerability. Indeed. And apparent yep. weakness being in fact great strength and great potential. Right. And that brains in fact uh, can triumph over brawn as long as one is you know, really willing to use that brain. You know, Xenophon tells the story of the 10,000 in which I think it was Cyrus led the mercenary Greeks against a foe 
within the first three minutes of, the conf- of, of combat, Cyrus is killed. And these 10,000 Greeks have to make their way through Indian country back to their home country. And the reason that happened is because Cyrus falls. No one had made a plan, but the Greeks on the spot made a plan and made their way home. Yeah, that was a story I actually talked about a bit a while back. I can't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but it was an episode entitled Save Yourself. And I was giving examples in history of individuals and also groups who were able to overcome great adversity by basically acknowledging that they had to take care of things for themselves, that no one was going to save them. Look at the escape stories from from the war to save Joseph Stalin, both uh, Western and Eastern. There's just some astonishing stories there. Yeah, and even the name of the political arm of, of the Irish resistance, right? Sinn Féin translates as us alone, yes. or we ourselves, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. So, okay, we're happy to accept help from outside, but we're also willing to basically pull ourselves up by the bootstrap, so to speak, and take care of things ourselves. Indeed. Um, this is a question a listener asked a while ago, and honestly, I, I failed to jot down the name of the listener who asked it. So uh, if this was you, I think it was a question asked through Facebook. I apologize for, for not throwing your name down in my notes, but a listener was asking um, your take on – a stateless society, you know, in the future, if such a thing should come about, if, if in the future, the way I would put it is if we had some sort of Zomia in North America, or at least a portion of North America, some sort of, you know, stateless free society area, what are some of your thoughts? Obviously, this is speculative, but as a guy who's obviously knowledgeable about a lot of these sorts of things, what are your thoughts on what a stateless society's defenses against external threats might look like? I think that stateless societies actually exist in the United States in the form of black and gray markets. Whether you're producing raw milk, you're selling honey on the side, you've completely divorced yourself by being off-grid, not connected to an electrical grid of any part. Uh, You don't pay your income taxes. So I think small and large, there are active resistance organizations and movements and individual movements throughout the United States. So let's suppose that the, I think that Jim Rawls has posited that there's going to be possibly in the future an inland northwest pocket of resistance against an overweening federal government. Uh, maybe Ecotopia would occur on the, the west coast. We would have the Soviet Socialist Republics of America, of course, in the American Northeast because <laughs> that is their natural predilection. Who knows what the rest of the country would look like. So how would they defend themselves against a technologically superior, maybe numerically superior enemy? Mountainous terrain, a, a, TP, a TTP tactics, techniques, and procedures that adopt a means of exposing vulnerabilities. For instance, UASs are ubiquitous. How do you stop UASs from operating? Well, what if you were to attack what's referred to as the golden thread, which would be all their logistics and, and refit and refuel facilities? What would happen if the pilots are, are threatened or liquidated in a fashion that stops the UASs from being an effective surveillance device? What would happen in a rifleman's culture where instead of attacking an army that is, that is marching on you, you simply do what many did in the first American Revolution – 
and you shoot the officers, you shoot the, the command and control components, you target the command and control components. Because the one thing with large industrial armies is that the larger they become, despite the lip service they give to mission-type orders, what, what we've referred to in other episodes as Alftrag tactic, which is where you have these decentralized means of, of maneuver that don't need divisions or higher echelons to tell them what to do, what the mission is, what the intent is, because that's already been built into the system, which made the Germans so effective during the war to save Joseph Stalin. But the sclerotic, arthritic, large, cumbersome organizations that are the American DOD today and the Western NATO forces that have sort of mimicked what the pentagram does, all of these things are such that they can be defeated in detail or in whole by attacking command and control structures, by compromising individuals at the top through narrative frameworks such as what happened to certain generals in the U.S. Army over the past 10 years. Uh, and what would happen – and we've entertained this in the past, CJ – what would happen if in every conflict on, a, on, on earth, whether the starting combatants acknowledge this or not – all politicians assume combatant status, whether they like it or not. Would that put brakes on either their ability or their propensity to start these conflicts? So I, I think history shows us a, a large framework to include the first American Revolution where this, this tiny Lilliputian country, you know, the, these colonies on this Atlantic seaboard, managed to best the greatest army on the face of the earth. The France, a close, France being a close second, of course, but France having been hogtied, hamstrung, and sort of neutralized by what had happened during the French and Indian Wars between Canada and the UK a little more than a decade before the first American Revolution. So I think history provides us with many examples of numerically inferior num and technologically inferior forces besting forces that are better in both of those things. Yeah, I've always looked at it again through the lens of something we've we've mentioned before, uh, the starfish and the spider. Yes, indeed. Where if you had this anarchic area, especially if it was not like just a place where, where it was a failed state and there were different factions vying to be the next state, but where you literally had people going through like a conscious, deliberate revolution against the idea of a state, right? That that would be an absolute nightmare. If you were an external conventional military looking at looking at that and how to conquer it, because there's no there's no head to attack. There's there's no nerve center. There's no capital to seize. None of that. And, and, so, and that completely short circuits most conventional military organizations on planet Earth as we speak until, you know, and as we've discussed before in other podcast series, and this is sort of tying the bow on that. Whether the the U.S. and the West proclaim themselves to be third-generation armies and, and armed forces, they are second-generation armed forces, which, to recap very quickly, is attrition industrial-style warfare that does not include elegant maneuver, either direct or indirect, as we see characterized by third-generation warfare. Yeah, and another thing I'd throw out that I've thought about and I've encountered in a few places, but not that many kind of you know libertarian or abolitionist-type people have brought up. It seems to me it's entirely possible to create some sort of a militia-type organization in a stateless society. Absolutely. While, while, still being, while still being congruent with the non-aggression principle, while not you know, coercing someone to join 
who doesn't want to join. But if you had a, a stateless society that was socially cohesive, that you could very easily have an effective militia-type organization that was not based on, on coercion and that, in fact, many people would quite voluntarily uh, serve in. I agree 100%. And I want to caution any of the amateur historians in the audience – Please don't use the militia organizations from the French and Indian Wars and, and the first American Revolution as examples of this because those were all compulsory militia organizations up until the beginning of the 19th century in America. Right, yeah. right. So think of the, the cohesiveness and, and the morale of a militia organization in which all of those who were, who were participating actively – wanted to be there and chose to be there, who were not just punching out a requirement by law, you know, to drill this many times a, a month yeah. or, or whatever. Um, you know, imagine the the possibilities of that and what a pain in the ass it would be to try and conquer something like that, especially if it was very decentralized in its structure. Well, I think uh, w- we can see examples of that. And again, I make I make no, uh, no excuses for Leto Vorbeck being, you know, the white knight. He certainly participated in things that were rather malodorous. But when you look what he did for four years in German East Africa, without orders, simply with intent against clearly technologically and numerically superior forces, he set an example of what can happen when you have a self-sufficient military organization in place that is pursuing goals that are political goals, but nonetheless goals to keep an enemy at bay from, from another nation state that is invading there's a lot of lessons to be gleaned from Leto Vorbeck. Yeah, certainly a lot of lessons about making do with not a whole lot with in nothing. terms of yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, turning and and again hearkening back to stoicism and the obstacle is the way and all those sorts of Ryan Holiday of notions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and just thinking about today, I mean, it, if hypothetically one were planning to just simply pick a nation in Africa and invade it and take it over, to me. The least inviting one would be Somalia, the one in which there is the least viable of a state. Amen. Right? Yeah. I mean – and in fact, there are lots of even nations in Europe that I think would be a lot easier to invade and take over militarily than Somalia, even though on paper those nations in Europe would have you know significantly more wealth and technology and, and a military and all this sort of thing. But the point is that would give them a vulnerability because you'd be able to just knock out their their centralized uh, military structure, take control of their capital and, and whatever other major cities, and that'd be a done deal. Whereas Somalia, I mean, you'd invade it, you'd conquer one block and like every other block would still be against you. Well, I think uh, Jim Rawls, if everybody is familiar with him, he's a friend of mine. He, he writes a survival blog and he's written a number of books. I was privileged to write the foreword to his latest book, which will be released on December 1st. It's called Land of Promise, the Counter-Caliphate Chronicles series, book one. And what he's talking about is carving out this tiny, notional African state called Ayima in Africa proper and how that would occur for a Christian or libertarian diaspora to fall upon from the world and defend it along the lines of what you you and I have discussed throughout this entire podcast series. Mm, interesting. Yeah. One other question from a listener that I just got yesterday, and I did jot down the name on this. Uh, this was asked via Facebook, and the listener's name is Matt. And Matt just wanted to know more of your take on the Tamil Tigers 
and in particular on their decision to use conventional warfare rather than guerrilla warfare and basically your take on was that the main reason why they failed? I do think it was the main reason why they failed. Uh, Sri Lanka, which is located at the foot of the Indian subcontinent, is an island that used to be called Ceylon. As a matter of fact, Arthur C. Clarke used to call it his home. There's a horseshoe-shaped land there that the Tamil Tigers, who are the LTTE, which the reader is, is referring to, were trying to make their own independent state out of. Surprisingly enough, they were Hindu fighters. I do think their military defeat was not only due to adopting a conventional warfare profile, but also their use of terrorism, which, which ended up, I think, causing a, a, a whole lot of resentment, not only in the middle of Sri Lanka, which was not the intended LTTE territory, but even among Hindus who, who were having misgivings about employing that kind of strategy, because they would take entire buses, for instance, weaponize them with explosives and, and uh, blow them up in, in shopping centers and such. And of course, who is targeted in that? It certainly isn't a government facility or government personnel or military personnel. It's a lot of folks who may very well be both Hindu or whatever the, the religion was of the people who were there at the time. And I think that also led to it. Now, have forces in the past been able to meld conventional to unconventional frameworks and prevail? Of course, we see that in Vietnam, for instance. And you were kind enough to put in your show notes of one of the episodes, a uh, book on General Jap, G-I-A-P. And I would urge everybody who's interested in how does one take an unconventional framework, conjoin it or marry it to a conventional framework, and make that prevail – Jap is the guy to go to in the 20th century if you want to see how that's done. What happened with their military defeat, and it's very interesting because it's very singular in what happened to the LTTE, they simply dissolved. And one of the reasons they did was because a after a brief period of, of negotiations, the LTTE pulled out of peace talks, and then they started an assassination campaign. One of the people that they assassinated in 2006 was Lieutenant General Sarath Fonsenka. He was very popular. And as a result of that, the European U Union said, well, the LTT is officially a terrorist organization. The LTT re relied, I wouldn't say exclusively, but to a large extent, on the Tamil diaspora nationwide, much like the Jewish diaspora outside of Israel, providing a lot of material sucker, money and support, and narrative frameworks for them. And I I, I would suggest from my reading of it, which isn't ex as extensive as others, that that probably drained a lot of their legitimacy as a result of what they did then. And uh, it, it, it bears further investigation by your, by your audience members to see why the LTTE failed. So again, it's at least a possibility that uh, things like narrative and legitimacy may have been as important, if not more so, than – physically what happens on the battlefield. You know, there's a number of lessons for us to draw from the great conversation we've had, CJ, but that trifecta of narrative, legitimacy, and grievances, you can use all kinds of variants of that. You can question premises, you can arrive at conclusions, but those three things are probably the vital ingredients of whether an insurgency prevails or fails. Well, um, is there... Anything else that you, you'd like to say to kind of wrap this thing up and 
put it all on a on a gift wrapped platter or something like that. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've, any any last closing thoughts or words of words of wisdom or encouragement or anything? Well, first, CJ, I wanted to thank you for for taking the time because, as you've said to your audience before, we originally started this as a one part where we were just going to discuss irregular warfare, and it morphed itself into six parts. And and I think we've teased out a whole lot of historical and philosophical things that may not commonly be approached when people are talking about irregular warfare, guerrilla warfare, and those kind of things. Particularly when you and I are discussing the Rothbardian non-aggression principle, the cessation of, of terrorism as, as a, a monkey wrench to be used in the insurgent toolbox. What we're basically coming to a conclusion about here is that everybody, and I know this sounds like a hoary cliché, Everybody is an insurgent if they wish to captain their own destiny, if they wish to establish their own self-ownership, and if they wish to have their family, their friends, their community go in a direction that isn't dictated to them, but one that they decide upon. Very, very well said, and I, I think that's a a great way to to hit the hit the period uh, button and the and the enter button and. <laughs> cap this series. So, uh, Bill, I just want to say that I've enjoyed this very much. Uh, I really appreciate the amount of time and expertise that you've shared with us. I think that we've, we've given the audience a lot to think about and a lot to look for in terms of doing their own research and their own thinking on these things. And, and that's great. That's, you know, kind of the highest goal that I'm always trying to shoot at with my podcast. So just thank you very much. It's been great honored to have had you as my first guest on the dangerous history podcast and i definitely hope to have you again have you on again sometime in the future to talk about other stuff i'd love to do that and and cj i feel i feel the uh the honor equally what you've done with the dangerous history podcast is revolutionary i i think what you've done is you've you've shown people that history isn't simply about dates or events history is about cause and effect history is about how we view this large stream narrative of what makes us human. And I thank you for that. A pleasure has been all mine. Thanks once again to Bill for all of the time he spent sharing his expertise with us via the Dangerous History Podcast. Really happy to have had him on as my first guest and really happy to have been able to spend so much time bouncing ideas back and forth with him on this very interesting and really undercovered topic, at least undercovered from the point of view of anyone who is not a frothing-at-the-mouth status neocon type. And as before, among other things, I will link to Bill's website, zerogov.com. Some of the Amazon links for today's show will be his books, as well as some of the things we mentioned in this show. And I'll remind you one more time that on the ZeroGov forum... If you join that, you'll have access to a special sub-forum for the Dangerous History Podcast that's there. You can't see it unless you are a member of the forum. But joining it is, of course, absolutely free. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. 
You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that... For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, along with Bill Bupert, helping you to learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.